Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture digest. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Alex Andreu. This week we are super excited to welcome the lead singer of the magnificent stadium-filling band Elbow, Guy Garvey, to talk music and more. Plus, aha! We will be meeting our Waterloo <laughs> as we listen to the new album by lesser-known Swedish upstarts ABBA and we have Rebecca Hall's directorial debut movie Passing. Lastly, Sean and I take a trip to see Spencer, Pablo Larraín's film about Princess Diana starring Kirsten Stewart. Will we be tugging our forelock or turning Republican? All this and quite literally more in today's Culture Bunker. Welcome once more to the Culture Bunker and come grab a chair and place your stockinged feet by the warmth of our fire for we have Ivor Novello winning, Olympic theme singing, honorary doctor and sometime DJ Guy Garvey with us from Elbow. Hello. Hello, how are you and where are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I'm in my little writing room at the Dairy Studios in Brixton. Absolutely. Is, is the dairy involved or is that long, long ago? Long, long ago, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> him mooing in the background. No. <laughs> Elbow have just completed a UK tour. What's the most surprising thing about being back on stage? I suppose how quickly everybody adapted to the new scenario. Nobody knew how it would be, both in the band and, and looking out into the crowd every night. For the first few minutes, everybody looked out of their depth a, a little bit. Um, I suppose the idea of being in a crowd full of, uh, you know, in a crowd, in a room full of people, and then just like two or three songs in, it just felt completely normal. And the gigs were great. If if I could use one word to to describe it, I'd say release was the thing. People Mm -hmm. really going for it when they were singing and, and, and by the same token sort of reacting quite emotionally to, any whist or yeah, I just everything was heightened a little bit more. Uh, particularly mm. the mm. show we did in Brighton was unbelievable. It was like it, yeah, you could feel that everybody had come through something. Mm. There's a pa- palpable difference, isn't there? Yeah, just being out, there's something else yeah. in the air. Over the last couple of years, have you found yourself in front of a mirror with a hairbrush? You've been missing the live experience so much. Is there any bit of that in secret kitchen disco? I, I never gave that up, to be honest with you. <laughs> Yeah. I've always done. I've always done a bit of that. We started. Elbow did some lockdown video. We took fan requests, and in our respective rooms, we we did versions of whatever anyone requested. And, and we were sort of not surprised, but delighted that people were choosing the gentler side of what we did. They were choosing songs about longing, about distance, mm, about mm. yeah, the gentler side of what we do. So we decided to make a record full of that music, and yeah, and as much as we could, we wrote it. Uh, apart and then got together to finish it yeah yeah we'll be delving into that process we will talk to you more about it making music and romance in an age of cold hard cynicism or maybe we're out of that now but we also have another guest don't we Alex Jude Rogers is an award-winning journalist and broadcaster you may have heard her BBC Radio 4 series A Life in Music you may know her writing from The Observer The Guardian New Statesman Mojo The Quietus and many more she works hard for her money (laughs) we're lucky to have her because she's also finishing a book Hello, Jude. How are you and where are you? 
I'm very well. I am at home in the Welsh borders um, in my office with a lovely poster by Sean Pattenden on the wall behind me, which I have for all my uh, Zoom calls and uh, interviews. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm well. I'm uh, sort of still reeling a little bit in uh, us recording this the morning that the um, ABBA album has come out, which we'll obviously talk about later and which I reviewed. But um, I'm well apart from dealing with the complicated emotions that that is a uh, set off in you <laughs> <laughs> you're conflicted aren't you a bit more later uh, so <laughs> is the book in a protective bubble or can you tell us a little bit about it now and how's it going yeah it was announced it was announced in august um slightly terrifyingly because mm. i was about halfway through writing it almost <laughs> as if they were trying to get me to do it um yeah it's out end of april next year um it's called um the sound of being human um how music shapes our lives and it's a book in which I try and answer a lot of questions about what music does to our lives. You know, why does music take us back to memories from many, many years ago? Why does music have instant effects on us and make us want to dance, make us want to cry, make us want to do various things? And I tell, I try and answer all these questions by going into neuroscience, anthropology, um, you know, lots of clever stuff. And I interview a lot of people, basically, because uh, I have a single order science GCSE. I'm not a, an expert myself. I interview lots of people. And I the book basically follows the shape of my life as well, from when I was very little, my first memory, which was of ABBA, <laughs> strangely enough. <laughs> um, ah, so traumatic. Up to, um, up to the present day, you know, it goes to childhood, teenage years, teenage obsessions, falling in love getting married, having kids, experiencing grief, getting old, you know, all the joys. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm literally in the last edit of it now. So it's those, you know, we're at the semicolons and long dashes. Uh, oh, part of I, know it that, I know that stage of it well. A friend, a friend <laughs> of mine describes it as less art and more carpentry. <laughs> Have you discovered anything mind-blowing, mind-bending while writing it? Oh, lots of things. It's been quite a interesting process you know trying to knit all these different elements together um some amazing stuff about how you know we're programmed to respond to music when we're still in utero you know you know there's something that people have long said you know put the headphones on a pregnant woman's tummy and you can baby can hear it but actually how advanced the auditory system is then and how our auditory system is one of the things that goes from that stage to very late in our lives and even when people are going through the last stages of dementia that system is still very active in most people and I'm trying to unpick you know what does it say something about who we are as human beings it is does it say something about the way we've evolved um lots of stuff about how social we are as a species um and how that is fostered through music um which is especially you know affecting at the moment after 18 months of us all being at home listening to music and not actually going out and experiencing it with other people that's been really really interesting I've spoken to some fantastic people and it's yeah it's been it's some very emotional moments in it I kind of uh, you know I had a little cry yesterday and I was like right come on man up dude you can do it yeah I'm, I'm proud of it there's lots of music journalism in there as well might even mention Andrew Harrison at one point, but um, my legal team will check that I don't, you know, libel him. <laughs> Easily done. Before we get on with the show, a small reminder, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture and more every day. Plus, we've got a new benefit for Patreon people. 
We are taking requests. You can suggest a tune for us to play in clip form on the show. Suggest it in the comments on our Patreon page and post a link to the song. None of your big hitters, please. This isn't a Jimi Hendrix <laughs> tribute pod. We want the curious, don't we? And we want the unknown. We do. Yeah. We'll see what we can clear and play. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. So, Guy, welcome again to the show. I think I've welcomed you three times. <laughs> well <never> done. <laughs> it will be more. Well done. It's your ninth studio album as Elbow. Flying Dream One was conceived in small bursts, it seems. Correct us if we're wrong. And ideas, as you were saying earlier, were sent via messaging originally in the midst of lockdown yeah. 2020. It's been described as sending each other little love notes over the weeks and months. But that's from your press release. So I'm allowed to say it. Tell us more about love notes and tell us about six words, which we're going to hear a snippet of in a minute. Love notes in terms of everybody in the band was, as we all were, in different circumstances. So we're used to working remotely because I live in London and they all live up north. We kind of use office hours. So while I'm here in this room, they'll be together in Salford at Blueprint Studios, or they'll be in their respective home studios, and we will actually be working at the same time. So you can work real-time on a song. The software now where, you know, in, in terms of what we're doing now, pretty similar stuff, except you can listen in full hi-fi to what's happening uh, mm. anywhere. Um, so mm. that that was removed. That kind of working at the same time thing was removed. My personal circumstances were that, my wife's mother, who was the actress Diana Rigg, was diagnosed with cancer in the March that everything was locked down. And she was with us until she died in September in our house. Right. So it was probably the end of the day, every day, when my wife's son and my darling Dee were all in bed. Uh, that's when I'd go to the back door with my scotch and my cigarettes and listen to what the lads had sent that day. And because we weren't, literally weren't able to chat because of everyone's different homeschooling sort of, uh, you know, all, everyone's different schedules, the music had let me know how they were. I'd hear a piece of music that Pete had written, the song on the album Calm and Happy. The music for it sounds anything but that. It's really quite worried sounding and, uh, and very blue. So that kind of shaped the lyrics. I ended up writing about my childhood and about how my mum protected me from any sort of any of the, the big bad stuff going on in the north of England when I was a kid. I create the characters Margaret Saddleworth and Maxwell Belarus. You know, it's not mm -hmm. too thinly veiled about post Thatcher <laughs> North, uh, the north of England, and, and Saddleworth Moor, and all that that mm -hmm. represented in, in my mm. childhood. Uh, and then Maxwell Belarus is, is, well, my dad was a Maxwell pensioner, but my mum shielded us from the worst sort of parts of all of that and uh, and I had, a, I had a childhood full of magic and wonder and fun Well let's listen to Six Words and we'll chat more after that You bring my hand to my heart You fling all my plans to the wind You roll me a better part
So we're talking about you writing the lyrics, but also you've talked about your musical references on this record. What were you listening to? Because you're referencing things like Astral Weeks, Talk Talk, John Martin, Solid Air, and you can really feel that coming through, I think, musically. Was there anything, <laughs> you, there wasn't any sort of Buck's Fears in the background, it was all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, these whole albums in this very earthy, very... Fizz is always in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's a very spacious, if not quiet sound. There's a lot of solid air in the middle of it. Yeah, it was, it was partly dictated to by just the mood, and uh, just, mm. you know, the, the international mood, if you like. I continued broadcasting, I do my weekly music show for the BBC and I put a few less challenging old and new songs in, you know, uh, and a bit more chicken soup programming when, when lockdown happened, I played, I think in my first, uh, cause I extended my show from two to three hours. And in my first show, I played the whole nine song medley from Abbey road uh, and things like that. And yeah, in the same way as like uh, my broadcasting was about giving people things that would be a, some assistance and help. That's the way I was listening to music, and, and, and I dare say the lads as well. We've always written music like this. There's always been one or two songs like this on every album. But the idea to do kind of a, a one-mood piece, something that you you put on and leave on sort of thing, because there's usually a lot more light and shade in our stuff. And the, the albums that you mentioned, they're... There's some of the records where all of our tastes meet, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've talked about themes of the record and childhood does come through quite a lot in that it's reflection. Would this album be different if it hadn't been made at a different time? The most stupid question anyone could ask. No. You couldn't have got this album if we didn't have last year and also your personal circumstances. Absolutely. And and because, you know, in in all of our lives, in the same way as it was with, with everybody I know, the focus was family the whist and the sort of nostalgia for people and places is increased when you're not allowed to see them. We wanted to make a record that could only be made in these times without it being a sort of hard reminder of of what was going on. Being around my son anyway has me looking at the world through his eyes. There's a ton of songs like that. Come On Blue is about moon gazing with him and I actually wrote it to future him when I'm not around, yeah. uh, sort of like a reminder that I'll always be with him. And I was kind of inspired to do that by being visited by my old friend Brian Glancy in a dream. Um, mm. Brian is the original seldom seen kid. He died in 2007. Um, and I had a dream that I just had a, a, a not unusual night out in Manchester Roadhouse, at the, the now defunct legendary club in Manchester that you'd be very familiar with. Um, we all used to work there, all of Elbow. And I had a night out with Brian in, in a dream one night. And I woke up and I'd had a night out with Brian. Um, and I thought whether that was from beyond, a visit from beyond, or whether it was from within, um, it freshened his essence in my heart and in my mind. Uh, and in that way, he's not gone anywhere. And that sort of triggered me to write that song for Jack. And it, and it also made me realise what would have happened if Brian had met my wife. She was exactly the kind of woman that would make him go, do lally. He really loved a posh bird. <laughs> and, and at the same time, she's she's outrageous and naughty, and so was he. And then yeah. I yeah, pictured yeah. them dancing together, that beautiful thing of yes, your best yes. friend dancing with the person you love. That gave us the song, The Seldom Seen Kid. I gave it that the same as the album title to to let people know it's that I still miss him. And then another song after the eclipse, 
I got all the language from that song from an episode of In Our Time with Melvin Bragg. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a huge fan of the programme and always have been. Yes. But it's usually really dry and factual. I have to say, I love that, you know, in a really geeky way. But yeah. on this one edition about Eclipse, these guys, these scientists that chase these things, these occurrences all over the globe, they couldn't help using really poetic language. And virtually every lyric in that song, you know, a shadow raced across the earth. I think somebody actually said that, mm. um, you know, taking the day and confusing the birds. It was like a perfect metaphor for everything that was going on in COVID mm. and in lockdown. It comes from wherever it comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, you talk, you've talked about childhood and Flying Dream 1, the song, talks about your sisters almost. And there was another interview where you, they used to jump the stairs. And I'm imagining them trying to jump the stairs and fly. Is this something in the dead of night when the prayer group was gone is one of the first lyrics in there. That's really evocative. Again, it's dreamlike. But also, I'm presuming you said you had older sisters and they were really influential in what music you listened to when you were growing up. What did they play you? Well, Gina is really into her soul Mm -hmm. and she's got a great soulful sort of deep resonant voice. Um, so I'd hear a lot of, you know, I'd hear Aretha from, from Gina and and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. And, I remember she loved a song by Carmel, who was local to Manchester. She did a an amazing song called uh, "Give Me More," which is a great yeah, big remember. band thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. Uh, I got to meet Carmel. She's she's married to a mate of mine. I did I didn't realize it was oh, the wow. same person, but um, yeah, yeah, that was Gina. Karen loved anything up tempo and positive. She's a massive Elton John fan, which I got to tell him mm-hmm. one day, and she had some purple platforms. She was very upset one day when she turned up to. Her convent school, and she'd she'd gone to school in her in her dazzling platforms, and left her school shoes at home, and she had to go to Sister Mary Kelly. Very upset because she was a real nerd. Our, our Karen, I'd say, Sister Mary Kelly, I've forgotten my shoes. And apparently, this, <laughs> this lovely old nun leaned over the table and she went, "Well, Karen, they really are splendid boots." <laughs> <laughs> made her feel better about the whole thing. Um, <laughs> Louise is uh, still in, into folk. She, she's a great singer. She's in numerous choirs uh, and she plays the banjo. My sister Sam was a punk and there's a great story about her leaving the house in a bin bag stapled together at the top with paper hands on the boobs of the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> uh, and my dad picked her up at the bus stop and brought her home. <laughs> Uh, Before she'd had a chance to actually get out in the bin. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh and then my yeah. sister Becky, who is to this day the Beckypedia on my program, um, right. she she has the most exhaustive love of all music, and she played me all the Genesis and Yes and all the prog rock that really influenced my sort of part of what Elbow do. And the great songwriters, Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, Becky still informs my, my music to to this day. Um, songs on the album, you're talking about to your f- your future son in that way, but you're, there's a song, the last one, What Am I Without You? Myself and Jude are mothers of sons. You're a mother of son, Alex, at some point. I'm a son of a mother, be- <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, this is something that, has he heard this? It's this... 
enormous. I mean, how do we describe this song? If I turn this up, this song makes me cry. I mean, by about, you know, in minutes oh. or maybe in, within 30 seconds about that feeling. Because I think Elbow are known for your romanticism, but it's not a romanticism always towards a romantic partner. It's about us being in the universe and our connections with each other. Has he heard the song? What does he think of it? Uh, he, he doesn't like my choices in music on account of them being my choices. He, he, the actual phrase is, no daddy singing. <laughs> Okay. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, he, he likes, he, I mean, he's only four, uh, but he likes loud guitars. He likes loud drums. He, he literally screams rock and roll if you put something quite noisy on. I think he's heard the song maybe maybe when I'm not there. Maybe Rachel's played it in the car or something. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, that, that song's actually, it's to Rach and Jack. It was, it was written after watching her care for a mum. Um, so, Aww. you know, what am I, you know, on the earth for if not to put you to bed? It's actually about both of them. And, 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 oh, and reminding... Yes, I read it as a, as a yeah. paternal Well, no, feeling, it's definitely... It's, that's really interesting. It's to be shared between them. Um, I've been wa- watching you walk on the water lately. That's definitely about how amazing Rachel was with her mum. You know, she, she fell into the role. As soon as she heard Diana was poorly, she dropped everything and fell into this amazing sort of role as, as her care and nurse. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was massively inspiring and very lovely. I made a true friend of Diana in that time. I felt enormously lucky and enormously proud to be playing a role in the last months of that amazing lady's life. But the overwhelming mm-hmm. feelings for me were how impressed I was with my true love. She was incredible. Wow. I can't say any more than that. Jude, you've heard the album. Oh, yeah, it's it's lovely. Do you know what? Earlier this week, um, I put on them Twitter, um, wanting to listen to some autumnal music. I really wanted some low strings and low woodwind, and I had this elbow album to listen to, <laughs> and I hadn't quite yet, that I put it on. I was like, okay, fine, I'm just listening no. to this now. <laughs> it's, um, it's beautiful. You know, um, it's funny, when I listen to elbow albums, I always have to check myself because I feel since going back to 2008 when the seldom seen kid came out um I was on the Mercury panel obviously Elbow thanks won, for that too. and um we were so excited <laughs> that Elbow could do it. yeah it's all thanks to me your whole career <laughs> all thanks to me me and Janice Long kind of banging the table saying it's not but it's to win no Charles Hazelwood the conductor I remember he was a huge supporter of your music he's so inventive and all this stuff anyway I'll tell you all the gossip later if I can remember any of it but um I always think when I hear an Elbow record I still think of that night and how perfect it felt and even the conversations we 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 had about you know we shouldn't give this to them because we feel like you know they deserve this award is it because of the album and we all agreed it was because of that album and you know lots of us had known your stuff you know since the early 2000s anyway but this you know I've loved I've kept in touch with you ever since I've seen you live loads I loved the intimacy of this which felt like it was on another level and you know listening to you speaking about it now you know, you can feel that. You can feel that in the the, the little textures that come through. Um, you know, the fact that you've invited other in, in, instrumentalists in on this album, haven't you, as well? You know, the, the trust. I thought that was really interesting, the trust that's involved there. And, you know, in this very tough moment for us all where, you know, we need to be with other people, but we've got to be really careful physically. And, you know, that 
but that becomes a psychological thing as well. I looked her up, Sarah Field, who does the saxophones on it. Oh mm. my goodness, mm. just fantastic, yeah, you know. And you know, I, I I always listen to albums without reading the press material first, but instantly I thought, you know, this is elbow pushing that talk talk side of themselves you know and not you know you don't sound like talk talk and your voice is definitely not Mark Hollis's voice but it's um just thinking of you know the quiet moments and these little connections and but these these little things just bubbling through and yeah the song about Diana I listen to your show um when I'm around on Sunday afternoons and we were listening to the show me and my husband and little boy when you did the show for Diana and um you know just knowing you'd been through that experience you don't have to know you've been through that experience to hear there's something going on but it just adds that extra layer of meaning to it and it will connect with other people who've had not necessarily similar experiences but experiences of loss or grief or or fear over the last 18 months it's comforting without it being um but it's not mawkish, is it? I mean, there's, it's about connection and the no, universe as no. well. It's it's about loss, but also about Absolutely. what we gain. And I say, I mean, if you are referencing Solid Air and Astral Weeks, <laughs> <laughs> some of my favourite albums, and I say there's so much space within it, you all let yourself as musicians breathe and take time and do those things that you can do when it's your ninth album. Let's move on to your favourite film, because you have told us that one of your favourite films is Paolo Sorrentino's 2004 movie, The Consequences of yeah. Love. So we all beetle back this week to watch it. It's mm-hmm. also in my top five. I'm not just trying to... Oh, that's great. You know, like, <laughs> it's always been... It's, yeah, since I saw it, I absolutely love it. I have it so that I can watch it and I don't have to stream or anything like that. But our panel have seen it and I'm going to ask them what they thought. And then I want to ask you, Guy, why you chose sure. it. So, Alex. Yeah, sorry. Um, let me adjust myself because... Um, <laughs> I find that a little bit difficult in a good way, you know, someone who doesn't have children but has been taking care of a parent with Alzheimer's for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. I got those references directly as intended and I thought it was, um, I mean, that's the part of it that really got me. Mm -hmm. So, Consequences of Love. I think it's a masterpiece and it's also not for me. Is that okay to say? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I think it's a brilliant film, but I have a slight antipathy for things where you can see the director's cleverness. And I think you see the director's cleverness a lot in mm-hmm. it. There are times when the shots, like there's a there's a scene when the first time you see him injecting himself with heroin, mm-hmm. where the, the flip the camera does and then comes back up as he comes out of mm-hmm. his stupor is absolutely magnificent and makes such a brilliant storytelling point. And there are a lot of other times that I I find that my brain separates and is thinking about, oh, isn't that shot clever? Right. And that actually takes me out of the story. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it makes it an intellectual rather than an emotional experience. And I don't like that just because it's my trade as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really difficult for me to get into a film without thinking, oh, that's a nice two-shot, oh, that's a nice pull focus, or that's a lovely performance. And so I think it's the curse of the auteur that his handprints are too visible on the narrative for my taste. Mm -hmm. Guy, can you set the film up for us for those who won't have seen it? We see a man in a hotel. He chain smokes and he's rude and depressed, and you don't know why he's in this hotel. 
I don't want to spoil it in any way, but you don't like him. And by the end, you love him, uh, which <laughs> uh, is quite a trick to pull off. I'm trying, I'm trying to navigate it without giving too much away. But, but mm, mm. I hear what you're saying about the, the cleverness of the direction, uh, etc. And I do appreciate sort of the well-madeness of well-made things. Uh, and mm. I can lose myself in a narrative while appreciating how it's been made. And I can't switch off wondering how actors felt on set when that particular scene was made. But again, I can lose myself in the narrative while appreciating the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. of what goes on. And actually, I know Sorrentino's stuff, um, it wasn't the first of his films. I saw it. I think... Um, oh, that's Il, the third feature. Il Devo was the first one I saw, mm-hmm. which is very, very stylistically beating the establishment in Italy in, in a really high-tempo, sexy and appalling way. I like what he focuses on. I, I, I like his obsessions. But I can also, I think I know him well enough to to feel his self-conscious, mawkish, he messes his own work up in the same way as like, we've been in the middle of a song and perfected a, a, a guitar solo and then decided it's too clean and it needs throwing down the stairs a bit. Um, and th- there's a couple <laughs> of moments in this film, for instance, his best friend from childhood is is kind of a key figure in the narrative of the film, but he only comes up at two points. Um, uh, the second time it comes up, it's it's quite important. But the first time it comes up, there's a really cheesy, ham-fisted zoom shot to our character's face, and there's a really cheesy, ham-fisted rush of strings, um, as if to say, this is significant. And, and, and <laughs> it's the same as throwing a guitar solo down the stairs. He's like, he knows he's doing something quite glib to justify something at the end of the film. Um, and I like the way he messes up his own work in that way. Jude, what were your thoughts? You watched it this week. I thought it was fantastic. I've, I've never seen it. Um, it's one of those films, you know, in a long list of classics that you, you'll get around to at some point. And I watched it on my own. It could have is the kind of thing I'm a big, you know, th- strange th- European thriller on a Saturday night with the other half um, kind of person. It was quite weird watching it. Just I was had it on while I was sort of trying to do other things. And I thought, it can't do that with this film. You've got to just sit there, not even like make a cup of tea or go and get a glass of wine. And you've got to sit there and take it in. I thought um, Tony Savio, he was just amazing. You know, mm, I've seen him mm. in lots of other things. I loved how when the film started, you couldn't work out what he was going to be. Um, you know, I find him quite comical, you know, um, first of all, you know, because he was so rigidly miserable. I just love the way the film kind of, start as one thing and then you think oh it's going to become this and then it becomes something else and then you think it's going one way and it suddenly becomes mm. something else it's it's hard to describe what kind of film it is what genre it's in you know it's sort of like a thriller and it's sort of a art house kind of quite intimate film but it's sort of a love story and it's sort of a family drama and I found the en- ending just devastating <laughs> it was just like it's oh. incredible isn't it uh, yeah yeah but just in some ways, you could kind of understood why he had got he had got to that point, but you know, you were willing something else to happen than yeah. that. <laughs> Guy will be back throughout the show, but we're going to give everyone a little taste of your favourite tune, Guy, a bespoke music recommendation. The curse of music clearance again strikes. We can't play it, but we will put it on our rolling playlist so people can go and find it. What is your 
favourite tune and why do you like it? I mean, it's an impossible question to answer for every... Uh, at, the t- at the time I was asked, <laughs> <laughs> just a gigolo, I Ain't Got Nobody by uh, Louis Prima. Oh, okay. Uh, I've yeah. al- I've always loved it. I've always loved it, and I-, I chose it maybe because the band know that if I'm off to bed drunk, they put mm. it on. I'll come back. Uh, and it- <laughs> and it was- <laughs> Our old drummer Chuck at his wedding. Um, I was on my way out the door at whatever time in the morning, and Mark, the guitarist from Elbow, was DJing, and he apparently turned to our friend Neil and he went, "Watch Garvey spin on his heel." And he waited till I was at the door, and then he put the tune on, and I literally span on my heel. I came back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I think we all have a song like that, actually. Yeah, I bet. Oh, it. yes. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> the, revi- the song <laughs> that revives us for another, another miserable 40 minutes at the end of yeah, the night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, after the song is finished. <laughs> it's all over, isn't it? Wonderful. Let's give it a listen. Passing is Rebecca Hall's directorial debut from the novel by Nella Larson. It follows the intertwining lives of two mixed-race childhood friends who meet again years later after having lost touch in 20s prohibition New York City. Both are light-skinned enough to pass for white. Irene, played by Tessa Thompson, uses this sparingly to shop at a whites-only store or have the occasional iced tea at an uptown hotel. Ruth Negers, Claire on the other hand, has built her entire life on it and is married to a rich and racist Alexander Skarsgård. Here's a taste. I'm trying to find out the history of the blonde you've brought along. She's a girl from Chicago I used to know. Princess from Chicago. Things aren't always what they seem. I'll be damned. Lots of people pass all the time. It's easy for a Negro to pass for white. I'm not sure it'd be so simple for a white person to pass for color. So you haven't ever thought to? What? You ever thought of passing? No, why should I? Now I have everything I've ever wanted. This is my husband, John Bellew. Does he know? You dislike Negroes, Mr. Bellew. No, 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 not at all. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> What did everyone think? Let's start with Jude. What's your gut impression? I thought it was very good. I was about halfway through it. I did something naughty, which is I read an old review of it, Mm -hmm. a bit of an old review by accident. Um, I I stopped because I was annoyed with it. It was talking about how um, the film was very quiet and inert and it didn't really get going. And I stopped reading that review. And I thought, you've sort of missed the point of this film, which is that... (laughs) It's about how insidious debates about race are and not just about race, um, about who we are and who we want to be and who we feel like we have to be. I thought the acting was fantastic. It was superb, um, wasn't it? So brilliant. Um, Tessa Thompson, I just was there for about the first 15 minutes going, I know her, I know her, I know her. And I'm a terrible person for going straight on to you know, Google to try and find out who an actor is. <laughs> I've, I've tried to stop myself doing that. And then I realised about, you know, 15 minutes in, she was in Thor Ragnarok. And I was like, it's her. <laughs> um, and I got very excited. Um, but also um, just, I thought, it was a, you know, she's sort of the lead, even though there's ostensibly two leads. But what an amazing actor, you know, the way she could have carries it and the way she can register such emotion and 
Ruth Negger is also fantastic. Um, I spent a very strange day with Ruth Negger in um, a fancy hotel on the south coast of France a couple of years ago for Marie Claire. I think it's the last big... I used to do lots of interviews for women's mags. It's got a bit quieter now since COVID for some reason. Um, but, um, and she's an amazing person to meet. Um, you know, she's very Irish. She's got this very quiet sort of stoicism about her as a person, which I kept, you know, because I spent this time with her. Um, she's both very elegant and very stately, but very ordinary and quite quirky. And I thought, obviously, seeing her in this film, it reminded me of those elements of her. But she's almost... You know, iridescent on the screen. Yeah, she's extraordinary. um, But also, like, you know, she's like she's not real. But you know, she's but that's a lot about who she is as a character, who she's trying to be. Without any, well, before we get onto the spoilers bit, um, I thought the stuff, um, the undercurrents about um, their sexuality was really interesting. Very interesting. Yes, I was going to ask about that actually because I don't know whether I, as an LGBT person have an overly sensitive radar sometimes about these things or whether you both thought there was a queer oh, undercurrent so. yeah. to the story that mm. maybe they were oh, absolutely. they had been more than mm. just friends at some point or, well, even, or there was something they, between them that was sexual yeah and especially with you know I was quite surprised when halfway through there's a suggestion that Claire's character might have feelings about somebody else. And I thought, oh, because I, I thought he was going to be... It really made me think of the film Carol with Kate Blanchett. I thought it had a, that kind of quiet feel of that film, mixed with um, the feeling of The Remains of the Day, which I watched relatively recently, that sort of quietness and, you know, what, what's going to happen with this relationship or where do we go? And, you know, I'm not going to talk about what happens at the end, but, um, you know, there was still a quietness there in a way, even though there was drama. So many... Critics, I find, confuse stillness for inertness. They're not the same Mm. thing. In the opening sequence, actually, the quiet way in which she carries herself when she goes into a whites-only shop or in a whites-only hotel adds to the suspense, to the pressure of the situation, you know, because she's held, because anything you do might betray you. And that's the whole point of the forced poise of the forced middle classness that is that is put on her. I've I've spent many good days with Ruth Neger because she was doing Phaedra at the mm-hmm. uh, National Theatre oh, wow. at the same time that I was doing Hanif Koresh's Black Book on mm-hmm. a different stage of the National Theatre. So we used to see each other around the canteen and uh, a lot. And this was one of her first big theatre breaks. And I remember seeing her. She's tiny in real life, I should say. But she burns from within Mm. with this blue flame almost that is frightening. She has this internal intensity that is frightening. She brings all of that to the film. And I, I think she's stunning. In it, the film is shot in black and white and a, a mm. four to three ratio. Um, what did you think that the that was trying to say, Sean? I thought it was very effective in that you need to be drawn back to a time to then reflect what it means now. Mm. In a converse way, the more historic it looks, the more you see the parallels. And I yeah, know that yeah, yeah. that doesn't make sense at all, but but somehow to repeat the past and repeat 
especially the dimensions of the screen, as you're saying, it's 4.3, it's not widescreen, and for it to be in black and white. But also I, I was reading up some other things. Technically, it is easier for us to sort of see the characters as fairly nebulous, as being able to pass far more. And it's what why Billy Wilder shot some like it hot in black, black and white is because the men looked a little bit more like ladies in black and white than they did in colour, Jack yes, Lemmon and Tony yes. Curtis. So it's an interesting mm. idea of us, of the actors having to pass, you know, to us, yeah, yeah, to yeah. actually give us an idea. I think it is such a profound mm, film. Yeah. It's a film that I wanted to see again almost immediately. I thought I need a repeat yeah. viewing of this because, and not to take anything away from the black people who have to live with the oppression in America of the time and were passing as white people because it made life easier in some respects. We are all, as Jude said, passing for something. We all are trying to fit in in different situations. We are trying to be you know, more extrovert or more queer or more mm, less queer mm. or either, all sorts of things that yeah, we yeah. do without realising. We're all passing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all passing and, in this And way. I thought at times, actually, I couldn't avoid but thinking of the implications of the, the internal debate that the film was having on some of the trans debate mm, today mm. on what it means to pass or not. I think Tessa Thompson is absolutely incredible in it because of her stillness, because of the reasons where people were finding it like that, is because just behind the eyes, she is so good. And she has a more difficult part. Um, But she is us. So she is trying to work out what the Claire character is doing and whose side Claire Mm. is on. And we realise that probably Claire may not have a side because she's the most flirtatious person ever, isn't she? I I found out two factoids about the film after watching it, which threw an enormous amount of light on it, and I wonder if you agree. Rebecca Hall, the director, whom we recently saw in The Night House, um, turning in a stunning performance, and now it turns out that she can script, write, and direct as well, which is just so annoying. Um, So (laughs) Rebecca Hall has a complicated racial heritage. So she's the daughter of Peter Hall Mm. and the the mezzo-soprano Maria Mm. Ewing whose father, Rebecca Hall found out, was partly African-American but lived most of his life passing as white. Mm -hmm. Does this give the film a a different dimension, do you think? Absolutely, and I don't think she could have made the film without in this modern world having a you know a, a direct resonance to this and a direct experience mm. of this I think it's beautifully done but it also reminds me of her acting work is that she's such an incredible actor Rebecca Hall if you've seen Christine which is a 2016 film about a newsreader mm. who I mean it's not a spoiler to say who shoots herself <laughs> because that's what the film is about mm. there is that quiet understated torture that Rebecca Hall can be as an actor but also can direct that just makes this so true. Yeah. You know that this is her pet project. You know that this means so much to her. And and the second factoid was that the novel I found out was written in 1929 mm-hmm. by a mixed race female author. And this blew me away. <laughs> I genuinely thought this was something that was written in the last 5 years. That that's how current and modern and fresh it felt. Next up, Garden of Sweden. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. You'd be living under a rock if you hadn't heard that 2021 has seen many surprises, one of which is the return of the peerless ABBA. Two tracks appeared earlier this year, of course, alongside a CGI video and a YouTube special. And now Voyage, the album, is upon us after a 40-year break. 
Our panel have spent all morning listening to it in a bid to drive ourselves totally mad, maybe. What did we think? We can't play anything from it, so we don't get told off by Benny and Bjorn and their lawyers. But we'll put a tune on the rolling playlist. Jude, I'm going to start with you because your Guardian review, I believe, was out today. It may have been even mentioned on Lorraine this morning. What quickly (laughs) did you think of the ABBA album and would you recommend it? Uh, Jude Rogers, The Guardian, two stars. Um, (laughs) So... Very briefly, I'm a massive ABBA fan. I've loved them all my life. Um, I reviewed the Taster singles in early September for The Guardian. You know, I'm the go-to, you know, <laughs> ABBA comes up in the email box. Yep. Laura Snipes goes, Rogers, get Rogers on the phone. <laughs> um, and I was asked to review, I reviewed the singles, which I loved. I must admit, I Still Have Faith in You, which is the album opener, made me absolutely cry floods of tears when I first heard it. I did hear it at six o'clock and have to file a review by 730 and I still love it, but it's the, the cheese has kind of, you know, ripened a little bit in that for me. I still find it quite moving because it's a song about ageing and trying to hold on to it. And, you know, it's in the Arbus Grand musical theatre style. And then there's Don't Shut Me Down, which is brilliant. I still think that's brilliant. So I had great hopes. And then I was asked to review the album because Alexis Petridis couldn't, the main uh, Guardian's chief critic, because he'd interviewed the band. And then there I was, um, very excited. It came in on Tuesday afternoon. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I I don't love it. It's very hard when you're a huge fan of a band to review something when, honestly, you know, like, you know, your job is to be honest. But I found in the past, I remember I reviewed the XX's second album after I'd been completely obsessed with the first one. I didn't like it as much. I did that review. I reviewed the first night of Kate Bush's residency, and I didn't think it was perfect like everybody else. But I, you know, as a critic, I say you have to be honest. You have to, you know, think about this in detail. And just... I realised about a day in, what it is, is I love ABBA, and I think ABBA are at their best when they take in the stuff that's going on around them and re, you know, I was going to say vomited back out. <laughs> Not really. But, well, they have here. Um, no, they haven't vomited any recent stuff back out. They regurgitate it in their idiosyncratic, strange, magical Swedish way. So what have you they know, done um, here then? What have they done here that's not that? Oh, so they've done a song called um, a song called "When You Danced with Me." Um, that uh, the first line mentions Kilkenny, and I'm sure that's a bit, it's trying to think about when Super Trooper mentioned Glasgow. But it is this weird, I don't know, synthesizer Irish pipes um, song about this poor girl who her boy her boy has left and he's never come back all these years. And I'm thinking it's 2021. You know, she could get the train, she could drive, she could send him a text, she could find him on. Facebook. There are lots of songs about miserable divorcees who still really fancy their exes, even though their exes in the song sound really awful. There is a terrible song um, which starts with a man on a sofa with somebody called Tammy, who it become as the verse unravels, it becomes clear that, that this Tammy is a dog. Um, and I know that Albert have always been a bit daft in the past, and I also know that Benny and Bjorn's commitment to lyrics that reflect the equality between the sexes, etc., has never been watertight. But their arrangements and the quality of the production has always been fantastic. And I just didn't think there were enough great tunes here as well. There's a song called Keep An Eye On Dan, which makes me laugh because my husband's called Dan. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'd be going, keep an eye on Dan. That is a great tune. The arrangement, the sense, I loved it. But again, it's like... A w- Who is the Dan of the song? The kid. 
The Dan of the songs, the dog. Uh, Dan is the child, I think. Oh, I I thought it was another dog song (laughs) this morning. Well, it might be another dog, but you know, exactly. He's Dan. We don't really know. It doesn't matter. It needs a watch every week, Dan does. I'm Um, ranting. It was disappointing. And it ends with this song called Ode to Freedom, which I spent about a day and a half trying to find out um, which kind of bit of a ballet waltz that they'd, they'd sort of done something with, which was a bit from Swan Lake. And it's this... And I thought, oh, they've done something about the EU. Brilliant, they're Remainers. And no, it's just this sort of wishy-washy lyric that doesn't make sense. And it just feels, a friend of mine who also reviewed the record um, in a private email to me said, it's like they've cleared out a hard drive, <laughs> <laughs> which which um, I really felt. And, I, you know, as I have continued to say, you could find no bigger ABBA fan of course, than me. You have they've been waving my the life. for them. Yes. So my quality, I guess maybe my standards are very high and maybe that's why they're not met. Anyway, but I'm the only person who's done two stars, it seems. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, just quickly, because we don't have much time. Are they the Beverly Craven School of Rock today? I mean, this is how I felt the lyrics were. It's very plaintive. I'll I'll put a candle on and I'm going to yearn for a man. They're of a generation. I, I, I just, I think it's interesting that Jude is the biggest ABBA fan and the most disappointed reviewer and I think those two (laughs) things are related because I'm not a massive ABBA fan you know I love their sort of big hits I love to dance to them I've grown up with them but I've never been a sort of ABBA geek Um, and so my view has always been that even their best album has four brilliant songs and you know five okay ones and a couple of stinkers and so I didn't have that high an expectation from them. I understand the album as something different, transactionally, I think. I don't think they're putting out a thing that they want to be judged as, you know, a collection of music. I think they're putting out a thing to say goodbye to their fans Mm -hmm. and allow their fans to say thanks. To me, that, that emotional transaction has a completely different weight to someone putting out a an album, you know, that, that's going to blow you away. It's like a, a sort of last tour territory. There's something wistful and sweet and lovely about giving the opportunity to the people who have followed them for so many years to say cheers. And, and that's how I took it. And as that, I found it really enjoyable. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I forgive you. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm in the minority here, but I well, just... Well, you may be with, without, I just but there may be a lot of you know, people who I, like it. There were two or three tracks that really kind of did it, and the, there were three or four that were okay, and yes, a couple a Christmas, that were stinkers. Yes, a sort of Christmas lullaby, lo- little thing. Yeah, it's still going to be number one at Christmas, I'm afraid. I think so. Yeah. As, as, as Jude <laughs> says, there's a lot of Celtic appropriation in terms of uh, musicality and references to... Uh, to places and village fairs and there's a sort of they have picked up at least a new folk sort of element they thought oh this is this is what people are talking about but th- through Abba's eyes it becomes something else I found it almost impossible to listen to I find them very difficult to listen to I'm trying to dissect in an intellectual way why I hate Abba so much because I do find them oppressive and I think it's the the aspect of two women who sing really about oppressive situations and it reminds me of that very dark time in the 70s where 
So the parents were drunk and the children were neglected and there's something that's really evocative to me of what they stand for. And I try and listen to objectively and I hear people like Jude who can talk really eloquently about when they're good. And um, I've had lots of musicians that talk about the musicality and yet it leaves me absolutely cold and actually it repels me slightly. I, I, them and the Carpenters, I just find it too emotionally well, There you go, or one star review here. <laughs> I don't do stars. I run away from stars. Poisonous. So, I mean, you like it if you like it. But if you really like it, then you won't like it if you like Jude. So if you like them. so Yes, I think that's fair, actually. Yeah. Yes. If you really love them, you're not yes. going to like it. If you kind of like them, you're going to kind of like well, that's, it. I think that's a good a good way to um, end it. And let's move on. Let's have a little bit more pop music. Jude, you have chosen a tune for us. We'll put on our playlist. What is it? And why did you choose it? I've chosen an up to date song from 1974. Yes, I believe you have. Um, yes, this is um, Pace Setter by Alan Hawkshaw, mm-hmm. R.I.P., who died a couple of weeks ago. Um, library music composer, famously wrote the tune that was used for the Grange Hill theme tune, taking off one of those library records. I knew some of his stuff, but after he died, sadly, I kind of started trawling through his stuff. And this is from 1974, and it sounds like the most brilliant bit of weird techno from the mid-90s, crossed with some weird Philly funk. I don't know what it is, but I (laughs) love it, and it's been in my head for weeks. Okay, it's on the playlist, Pacesetter by Alan Hawkshaw and Brian Bennett. A fable from a true tragedy opens Pablo Larraín's movie Spencer about three imagined days over Christmas 1991 at Sandringham, during which Princess Diana, played by Kirsten Stewart, ultimately decides she must distance herself from the royal family in order to protect her fragile mental health. Here's a teaser. They're getting quite serious about you. So stand very still and smile a lot. They know everything. They don't. Mummy, what's happened to make you so sad? Well, here, in this house, there is no future. Past and the present are the same thing. Diana, they can't change. You have to change. To be able to do things you hate. You hate? There has to be two of you. There's the real one (laughs) and the one they take pictures of. Sean, Lorraine's previous films include Jackie, where. Mm Jackie, I thought, had some substance. I found Spencer lacked it. Yeah. Yes. Um, so he obviously does a good line in sort of anorexic <laughs> women in the public eye. Um, yes. I found Spencer lacked that substance. How did you enjoy it? Well, at the time, I found it very difficult to watch. And because it is just three days at Sandringham, where we obviously, as viewers, know Diana's history as UK viewers of the film, it doesn't need to be mentioned. She turns up on her own without an entourage in a sports car. And we know at this point something is going to happen to her mental state because we can see she's sort of almost shouting at um, (laughs) scarecrows in the fields, things like that. She is very much a stressed person. And I didn't like it when I saw it. And I have been thinking about it since. And I have been thinking about the great directors of, of women like Douglas Sirk and Nicholas Ray and the idea of the woman's film from the 40s and then how that morphs into the 1950s. 
And if you then because there are Rebecca tones. Yes, if you see it. it through that lens of a woman oppressed, and it is one story only, and you are going to see it from her eyes, and it is going to become so heightened, and so surreal, and so hallucinogenic, which it does become. Mm. This isn't a you know this isn't a broad view. It is a one sided story. It is a fictional idea of what Diana had to get through. I actually, in retrospect, really admired it as a film and really enjoyed thinking about it in different parts. So I would actually recommend it. I think Kristen Stewart is actually great in it. She is the last person you think of as being Princess Diana. In many respects, um, she nails the accent. She nails the look. They've, they seem to have done something to widen her eyes in that way. So I, I actually really actually enjoyed it um but don't listen too too loud because the free free jazz was very loud in the screening that we saw into give me a migraine mm. sit away from mm. the screen i thought when i heard that it, it, she had been cast mm. as diana i thought actually it's not a choice that i would have thought of mm. but it made perfect sense instantly mm. because she has that sort of slightly damaged doe thing mm. Uh, I didn't think she inhabited Diana in all cases. I think she impersonated Diana for parts of the mm -hmm. film. The The costumes are so splendidly recreated oh, from original Diana that some of it felt a little bit like a weird sort of fashion tribute act to me. I just, what I lacked, I guess, in it was a sense that we were going to discover who she was behind the public persona. And I found it actually quite upsetting and annoying that the film's take is that there isn't anything behind the... that the person you saw in that famous interview is exactly, you know, that that mentally unstable victim is exactly who she But was. But I think, having thought about it, I thought that was also a reflection of what her adopted family, which is the royal family, who are so obviously dysfunctional. We do not have to say that, but it shows more of their dysfunction. It's how they see her, as they can't see her as a human being. She is just part of the firm, and she needs to do what she's told now. And I fair thought that she's much fair cleverer than, than I had initially given sure, credit for. Fair enough, but, you know, it owes a load to, to an absurdist tradition, that's for sure. Mm. It reminds me of a play by Wilt Witold Gombrowicz called Princess Ivona, mm -hmm. which is precisely about that, a sort of royal family of monsters rejecting mm. this innocent girl mm -hmm. that have come into it until she um, uh, she kills herself by, by eating a fish voraciously at a dinner table and choking on oh, the bones. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it really owed a lot to that kind of tradition, but I just thought the symbolism was really obvious and in primary colours and mm. I thought it undersold me as an audience. I mean, to have the ghost of Anne Boleyn turning up every five minutes, you know. and, and I, the, I like that. And the music, which <laughs> is really sort of grand that. Baroque for the royal family, but free jazz for her. And when they get together, it sounds discordant. I just thought everything about it mm. was trite and obvious and incredibly annoying. What did you think of Timothy Spall, who is on neither side, we realise. He's not on the royal side or otherwise. I thought he gave a good performance as the sort of baddie mm -hmm. um, of the of the piece, the person. I, I thought there were interesting stories, actually, to be told from the point of view of the, the servants. Mm -hmm. So Sally Hawkins as the dresser. Yes. Sean Harris uh, as the, the chef. Yes. I thought they were very good. But 
you see, the thing that percolated with me since watching it is that she would just turn up in the kitchen mm. completely unaware of the 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 disruption she caused because she wanted to have a chat mm. with a chef. Mm. And suddenly everyone would be sent out of the room so she could have a, a chat with a chef. And so I just thought it portrayed her as if the image the royal family have transmitted of mm. her as a as an attention seeking troubled mm. person was absolutely correct and didn't really <laughs> question that she was attention seeking and annoying and mentally unstable and i just thought there was something more to that okay. so i would recommend it would you I wouldn't. I would. <laughs> I would rather die than watch this film again. Well, that is quite dramatic. <laughs> so, right, it's time to add a current tune from Guy. What he is listening to at the moment, Guy. What is your current favourite tune, please? Well, I have to admit to being on this record. Peter Jobson is uh, my oldest and dearest friend, and he, he turns 50 this week. Happy birthday, Pete. He was the bass player in I Am Clute, um, and he's been, in many ways, a, a musical partner for 25 years. We, we have a soundtrack company together, and uh, and he's been planning his solo album for as long as I've known him, and he's known the title and what he wants on the sleeve and what the songs are about before he'd written them. <laughs> uh, and, and he's seen yeah. it through to the finish. It, it's an extraordinary record. And as somebody who knows him very, very well, uh, I have to say it's a masterpiece in terms of he's managed to bottle himself. It's by turns romantic, smart, very, very funny, wistful, inventive. I'm so full of pride that he has been so fixated on exactly how he wanted it to be for so long and he's delivered it this particular song's called just because i'm dead and if i die before him that's all right if i don't i'm going to find it very upsetting one day while hilarious at the of same course. time peter jobson just because i'm dead just because i'm dead it doesn't mean i'm not around anymore just because i'm dead it doesn't mean I don't care Well, it's not my time Nobody asked me So I'm staying right here with you Can you see? And that will be added to our Spotify Don't blame us Playlist, which is on your notes in the app, isn't it, Alex? It is, yeah So you can find it easily on that note, we're at the end of the show. It's closing time chatter. What we'll be discussing is we order another chicky bubble bucket, whatever it is from KFC, <laughs> in our Chanel ballet pumps with our royal children at our side. Jude, what's your closing time chatter? I'm still obsessed with succession. Oh, yes. Too many S's in that sentence. Um, yeah, um, and there's a fantastic podcast by DJ Jeff Lloyd and uh, his wife, Sarah Barron, who's a brilliant stand-up mm-hmm. comic. It's called Fire Crotch and Normcore. And it's every week, that, which is after some names from the series, um, and the video, they're dressed as Tom and Shiv, uh, in the video, in the um, image to accompany it. It's very funny. There's an episode Tuesday morning after um, the show, and there's a thing on Friday called Friday Sprinkles, which is um, people emailing in with their thoughts about it. It's very funny. The fact that they're a married couple is hilarious. And if you want to send in some thoughts about the craziness of what's going on in succession, your th- theories or whatever the email address is 
fuck off at firecrotchandnormal.com. That basically tells you the tone of it. It's really funny. It's really great. Jeff Lloyd is one of our great DJs. He's very well known for his Beatles podcast. And also he does the show with Ed Miliband. But um, him and his wife together, brilliant. I want more of it. I gave it a listen. I... I I went in on Ep three, um, thinking that I'll listen to this week's show. Didn't realise they were married. Oh, of course that yeah. adds another layer, doesn't it, Jude? I'd missed that bit where they said it. They do you good. mention it? They, they mention it, but not all the time. It. It'll crop up every now and then. I realise now funny. why they have that energy together. Alex, what's your closing time chatter? So, in honour of our producer Andrew Harrison. I have some news. Oh, yeah. Gael Garcia Bernal has been signed up for next year's Disney Plus Halloween special. Mm -hmm. That is a Marvel thing. Mm -hmm. And rumours abound that it will be based on the Werewolf by Night series. Mm -hmm. So that made me squeal. (laughs) Has it made Andrew squeal? (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) I can hear him from here. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Sean? I just wanted to say that in in a world where we're constantly being peddled all the miserable stuff on the news and things, that the Manic Street Preachers raising £85,000 for the NHS due to their fundraising gig in Cardiff, I just thought was absolutely spectacular. And one of those... I hate to say heartwarming without sounding 80 years old, but I just thought, oh, fucking great. It's actually really right. <laughs> £85,000 from the Mannix to the NHS. Thank you very much. That's what pop music is for, everybody. Nice. <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to Mr Guy Garvey. It's been an education. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You won't need any luck with the record, but it is a wonderful record. Thank you. It's fabulous, and I hope it does enormously Thank well. you so much. Thanks so much to Dame Jude Rogers. We are delighted that you could join us today. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. From me, Alex, producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofrinevich, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. The Culture Bunker was written and presented by Sean Pattenden with Alexandreou. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Yelena Sofrinevich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese, Elbow's biggest fan except maybe my mum theme tune by Kenny Dickinson The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production <laughs>